the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up. Well, hello. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcasts. Uh, so in this episode, I will be looking at the, the second part, actually chapters three and four of The Proud Tower by Barbara Tuckman. So um, as I talked about in the last episode, this book is kind of a series of vignettes trying to get, draw a picture of the West, particularly Western Europe and the United States, on the eve of the Great War, right? So this was written five years after her celebrated the Guns of August. Uh, and it really kind of works in her mind as a prequel to this book um, or to that book. And and it sort of does that. I kind of see what she's sort of trying to do here. Um, I complained a little bit last time about her approach to the anarchists and her overall approach in this book is a little bit... I think it's a little bit random, to be honest. I, I think they're good stories. They're very specific incidents or topics within the places she looks at. So, for instance, I mean, the anarchist chapter is a bit of an improvement over some of the others around it because it is trying to look at Europe as a whole. And it looks at parts of Europe she's not that interested in in the other chapters, like Italy and Spain. Um, but I had no problems with the way she portrays the anarchism of the time. Um, but like the first chapter really just looks at one class and really one man, uh, you know, the um, uh, Lord Salisbury, who was a prime minister towards the end of the Queen Victoria reign uh, as kind of a, an example of the conservative regime of, of the aristocratic conservative, um, you know, political party. Uh, that dominated English politics towards the end, right? Of course, the liberals being the other competitor in those days. So it's, you know, those two chapters, I think both were su sufficiently broad enough to give us a picture because the patricians, the first chapter looked at the entire class, really. It was a window into their entire class and their social life. And the anarchist chapter kind of does look at this political movement across Europe and does deal with some of the background social context. As problematic as I thought it, it was. So anyways, now we get into two chapters. Uh, one is called The End of a Dream, the United States, 1890 to 1902. And the other is uh, Give Me Combat, which is uh, France, 1894 to, 19, to, to 1899. Now, the first one is a little bit easier to deal with. The, the French chapter, I'll just tell you right now, it's basically uh, 55, 60 pages on the Dreyfus Affair. Right. So she kind of condenses late 19th century French political life and political debates and the status of the French Republic into the Dreyfus affair and Zola's response to it. The Jacques. This is something if you've taken European history, you've probably at least somewhat familiar with. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've sort of studied the basics of it and I, I read this chapter. I mean, I don't see it as the most compelling thing you could say about France in this time period. I guess it was it was a major political scandal, right? And, and it was kind of like, we have these all the time now. 
and maybe it, it's kind of a forerunner to that. Um, and maybe it, it predicts some of 20th century obsession about politics. I don't know, maybe some of that's there, the drama of it all. Um, but I'm not sure it's the best choice, to be honest. It's, it's a good, it makes for a good tale, I guess. And I think that's Tuckman's approach and her, at her, what's on her mind. But I don't know if that makes it the strongest window into, into France. I, I think I would have, you know, I think it's much more important perhaps to talk about the revanchism of France, especially when you think about the way she approaches the French in The Guns of August. Um, and maybe some of that's hidden in that story. Certainly, you get a sense of it. I mean, the name of the chapter, Give Me Combat, makes you think about the revanchism, the irredentism that dominated French international politics. But this is about a domestic scandal. So I might say a little bit less about that just because it doesn't interest me as much. But the chapter on the United States, The End of the Dream, does, it's similarly focused, and unfortunately so. I think uh, there's more that could have been said about the United States in these very interesting years. Um, I think, what are the dates here? 1890, 1902. I think it's still sort of in that flyover country of, a, of American history, right? Like you have the Civil War, Reconstruction, and then you have like the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age, you know, it's been studied a lot. And there's been a lot of great stuff written about it, especially in labor history, which is my field. But it is... When you're kind of teaching American history, it's one of the hardest to talk about because there isn't a strong, compelling political narrative. There isn't a great heroic political figure. There's no Lincolns or Jeffersons or, or Washingtons or Jacksons who can sort of dominate the political discussion. So, you know, even people who study American history for a while, you know, fumble when trying to list the presidents from this era because they are, you know, not always the most memorable people. Um, but it's a really important period of American history you know, in terms of the social change going on right and her focus here is on reed um who is the speaker of the house at the time here's full name thomas b reed from maine um, a republican and he was so in the same way she kind of takes salisbury as the dominant figure of british politics and build around that she does the same thing with thomas reed here so it's kind of about thomas reed but even more so it's about uh America becoming an empire. Uh, so there's a few things going on in this chapter. One is uh, some of the political changes that maybe open up the door to uh, the progressive era in American politics. Like the, uh, you know, one issue is kind of the withdrawal of the elite from politics. And I want to talk about that a little bit because that's part of the context here. You know, America did have political families and the Adams show up a lot here, especially Henry Adams being a commentator and all this stuff, uh, being from a political dynasty. Um, but they're not like the, the, the British political dynasties, like the Lord Salisbury's. Um, but more broadly, it's like the American elite seem to have an indifference to politics that maybe they don't have as much anymore. I, I think it's hard to read this and when you think about today, you're like, wow, it's like it seems the elite are very interested in politics. Maybe not in the sense that they go and serve in government, but they certainly corrupt. And I don't think that was that different at the time. In fact, that's like a cliche of the Gilded Age, right, is that the big business interests were behind the scenes. But she does talk about she calls it the abdication of the rich, which I, I think that might be overstating the case. As I said, I do think there is corruption and politics from behind the scenes going on in, in American history at the time. But she's more talking about how they're not active in politics. They're not 
being players in politics. They're not running for president necessarily. They're not, by and large, you know, going into the House of Representatives or the Senate. You know, many of the people there are rich, but it's not like a class agenda, right? Most of the class stay with their business. And and she, she says this is an outcome of Jacksonian democracy. Quote, the abdication of the rich was born out of the successes of the American Revolution and the defeat of Hamilton's design to organize the state in the interest of the governing class. Jefferson's principles and Jackson's democracy had won. The founding fathers and the signers of the Declaration had been in the majority men of property and position. But the very success of their accomplishments ended by discouraging men of their own kind from participating in government. End quote. Now, that's not the intention of the founders. The founders did have this idea of kind of Republican virtue. Um, what's that? great book, uh, Machiavellian Moment. I forget the author's name, something with a P. Um, but that that book essentially argues that the American Revolution is not a defining event of the Enlightenment, but rather like a final event of the political thought of civic republicanism coming out of the Renaissance, which, um, you know, I haven't actually read that book that much. I kind of skimmed through it one time. But so it's a lot of detailed kind of political thinking, political philosophy. But, you know, that out of that idea is this idea that you do need not quite an aristocracy necessarily, but like this, like virtue coming from property. And those people are, are best to lead. Of course, that gives way. That's that's Tuckman's point here. That kind of attitude gives way by the 1830s for democracy. Um, and it doesn't mean that rich people don't participate in politics in some way. It's just as, as a class, that's not their primary concern. Their primary concern becomes business. She makes the point, quote, no president after the first six came from well-established family. Retreating to the comfort of their homes and the pursuit of their class, they left government increasingly to hard-driving newcomers pushing up from below. Such energies as they had devoted to making money in banking and trade rather than from the land, which they gradually abandoned, end quote. So that's another difference. There was such a big focus in chapter one on land. and uh, But land is not where the American elite is focused its energies at this time. You had the old Southern aristocracy, which was pretty powerful in the middle of the century, but by the end of the century, it's more marginalized. And so the American ruling class is in banking and industry and, and commerce and those kinds of things. You have brands instead of, of, of large landed estates uh, becoming more important. Um, so that's one aspect. Now, of course, you also have the this like frontier so that's like a big thing i think she, that's really what she's trying to get at with the end of the dream is this end of the frontier because the frontier allowed this dream of uh jeffersonian's jefferson's dream right this comes goes all the way back to 1803 and the Louisiana purchase right why he justified doing this is this would create the material conditions for a republic of free landed men for the foreseeable future now, of course, in reality, that created all sorts of problems. A lot of that land went to the ruling class, the capitalist class. Black people didn't get land to the significant degree in the frontier or in the reconstructed South. You have the rise of wage labor and all these things breaking down the dream in other ways that she doesn't want to really get into. Um, but the end of the frontier, the closing of the frontier, the Turner problem, the Frederick Jackson Turner problem of what's going to happen when the when the frontier dies, when the frontier is out of space, when there's nowhere left to colonize, what's that going to lead to? And and that's where she gets into the story of America becoming a colonial imperial power. So a lot of this chapter deals with like the the politics, the ideas of like Alfred Mahan, uh, who was this uh 
Navy officer, naval officer who wrote this book called Sea Power and History or something like that. Um, and he, she, he argued for basically the United States becoming a, a commercial maritime naval power, right? Like Britain was in the Pacific and other places. This would require colonies, right? So all of this leads to, uh, of course, the Spanish-American War. And that's where the chapter kind of ends. So the, again, the dates for the chapter are 18, 1890 to 1902. So 1902 takes you basically to the end of the Spanish-American War the annexation of Hawaii and the annexation of the Philippines. And then she kind of leaves. She actually does talk about the resistance to American conquest of the Philippines a little bit, the rebellion there and the attempts to suppress it. So that's kind of where the chapter goes. And I think that's for her the end of the dream, the dream of isolation, the dream of being different from Europe to a degree. And I think that does connect to some of the themes in uh, the Guns of August, where you see the hints that the United States is primed to be an imperial power, but still believing itself to be isolated, right? Even her essay, Why We Entered the War, talks about this too, right? The U.S. is an imperial power, in fact, if not self-acknowledged name, right? And World War I transforms that, kind of wakes you up. You know, if, if this is the end of the dream, World War I was the awakening to reality. Um, and then I guess that makes the interwar period kind of... Uh, some kind of hangover, almost a delusion that that we can go back to isolationism. She does some other interesting things here, like she gets into the the aristocratic class of of the United States at the time. Uh, she looks at John Norton um, of Puritan descent, writing, "Like Lord Salisbury, Norton believed in the dominance of an aristocratic class, which to him meant a class founded, not a landowning, but." in a common background of culture, refining learning and manners. So um, certainly that you makes, it makes us think of maybe uh, Andrew Carnegie's gospel of wealth or social Darwinism. These were of course very, very important ideas in the later part of the 19th century, even as we're giving way to kind of a new philosophy of, of rule in the progressive era. You, you kind of see hints of the progressive era, maybe being hinted at here, but not as much as I would have liked. In fact, I think there's a lot Maybe this is because I come from a U.S. history background. There's a lot here I would have liked to have seen more discussion of, like some of the ideas like social Darwinism, the, the changing economic realities for the majority of American workers, industrialization, uh, migrations of people, uh, the conquest of Native American people. It, it's only hinted at here. Um, she does talk about the conquest, the U.S. as an empire in the Pacific, but not so much in the continent. So she's a little old-fashioned here, and the book was written in 1967 for popular audiences. So um, let's not punish her too much for not writing it, the story as the way people would write it now. But it, it's pretty, as, as a historical account, it's pretty conspicuously dated. Um, as literature, I think it, it's, it's not too bad. It is, as always, she, she writes really well, and it's 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 worth checking out uh so i like some things about this chapter i think uh you know the honesty of dealing with american imperialism and presenting it as kind of a shaking of the nation from its from a delusion i think that's kind of an interesting idea so anyways that's that's chapter three the end of the dream chapter four give me combat france 1894 to 99 1899 and this is all about the Dreyfus Affair. So anyways, the Dreyfus Affair. Um, so Alfred Dreyfus, uh, 
was a military officer, a captain. Uh, and in 1894, he was basically accused of, of spying for the Germans, for the German military, passing some documents over. And he was found guilty of treason and, and imprisoned at that time. And this becomes a political scandal because of basically the Dreyfus's family uh, pushed to like prove his innocence. Um, so it actually would be years later that, that, that the evidence revealed that he was not actually guilty. And so because Dreyfus was, was, was Jewish, this got tied up into uh, French attitudes about anti-Semitism. But even, you know, that's, of course, a big focus of when people look at this is to what degree does this reveal just was Dreyfus just targeted because he was because of French anti-Semitism. Um, but there's also a lot here about the media. Um, in this affair, and it's something Tuckman does get into a little bit, is how this does become a media affair that begins to divide up French politics. And that's the sense it's very modern. I think that's maybe one reason it's interesting to people is nowadays is it is such a it was such a media driven event and how you know it was the public discourse became divided. It, it's very contemporary in that sense. So anyways, after all this public explosion, he was uh, where his conviction was annulled by like the French Supreme Court. Uh, and I guess that was seen as somehow like a victory of republicanism over these old like con more conservative forces that kind of led the anti-Dreyfus faction like the like the church was, was involved in this. And Tuckman gets into a little bit of that background, too. But eventually he's re there's another court martial and he's again found guilty and, and sentenced to like a lesser sentence. I think it's like five or 10 years of, of hard labor. And eventually, you know, in a later section, she doesn't get into that too much, but you know, it's, it's years later, he's finally pardoned by the president and restored to the military. So that, that's in rough what goes on in the Dreyfus Fair. It's not something that like really interests me that much to be honest. And I was really reading this with an eye to what she's really trying to say about about France at this time and how it connects to some of the other themes going on because what we've really seen in the first three chapters are themes of like of conservative politics versus more popular politics right so like chapters one and three deal with more conservative political uh, movements uh, competing with uh, well with Thomas Reed it, it's hard to say because you know well, there's this idea of this breaking down this this uh, old traditional filibuster idea. Again, kind of something that's kind of contemporary and we're talking about again, but this was an earlier reform of that, which would allow more popular reforms in government to be achieved. And of course, that's what Salisbury was kind of fighting against. He was defending that. But, you know, America also had its own aristocracy kind of with a different origins and different, slightly different attitude, but also there. And then you have the anarchists who are like the most radical voice of the common people right responding to the the, the grassroots turmoil uh in in this kind of rapidly industrializing economy right and trying to find a voice for popular for popular voice in what's still in europe at least a very aristocratic society right so where does france fit in this well france was a republic but it's being tested here so i think that's tuckman's point here is that this is a republic that's being tested by these also conservative forces, whether it's the military or the church, the anti-Semitic forces kind of fit in that side. And then you have these liberal voices represented by the intellectuals and Zola, 
who of course wrote that famous uh, tract, J'accuse, uh, you know, accusing, uh, basically it's a pro-Dreyfus document. There's even issues of free speech talked about here because Zola eventually is, is prosecuted himself uh, for his for his statement for his public statements. So um, Tuckman sees this whole affair, uh, which I'm not going to say too much more about, um, as a as a like a revolutionary moment, like a return to the revolutionary passions of of a of a century earlier, right? She writes, while it lasted, France exhibited, as in the revolution, political men at their most combative, at his most combative. It was the time of excess, men plunging in up to the hilt of their capacities and beliefs. They held nothing back. On the eve of the new century, the affair revealed what energies and ferocity were at hand to greet it, end quote. And I think that's what interests her about this, ultimately. It's like France, again, I, you know, you can't help but think about Guns of August, uh, which she wrote a few years earlier, and World War I are on the corner, right? That's in the title of the book. Is that partially her agenda? And as much as I, I don't want to do this, I don't want to make this book about uh, like a, a about Europe as the Titanic about to you know sink. But you know, it's kind of it's on this. It's in the text. That's what Tuckman's trying to do. Um, why was France so eager to go all in? Like, right? what was in this spirit of this of this Third Republic that made it cap capable of fighting this this war essentially? to the last man and you know what different energies were there on all the different sides right they might get unified together into the war effort but they're all there um and i think that's her interest here so anyways, that's all that's all i'm going to say of these two chapters I, I found chapter three a little bit more interesting just because maybe i i'm a little you know i i'm more comfortable thinking about and talking about american history and it's nice to see Tuckman talking about uh, America. This is the first time we get a really good look at, at the United States and in, in the works we have by her. Um, but that's it. That's all I'm going to say. So next time we're going to talk about two more chapters, chapters five and six, which one is about um, the Hague, the study drummer, the Hague, 1899 and 1907. And the other is about Germany, 1890 to 1914 and I believe that one deals with like culture and art something I'm kind of interested in and I'm kind of looking forward to that one's called Neroism is in the air so um, we'll be moving to Central Europe for the next two chapters so anyways that's that'll be it for now so short episode but I knew I wasn't gonna have too much to say about these two um, these two chapters um, we'll see what I have to say next time so, as always, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time with uh, as I continue to uh, dig into the Proud Tower.